You're a busy provider trying to stay current with the latest HIV testing, prevention, and treatment guidelines, and your pockets are overflowing with note cards. You need a convenient, trustworthy source for HIV testing, treatment, prevention, and care protocols. All healthcare professionals have a role in stopping HIV. Introducing HIV Care Tools from the AIDS Education and Training Center program. The HIV Care Tools mobile app is simple, free, and fully functional offline or online. It features quick guides for HIV prevention, screening, testing, diagnosis, and treatment. HIV Care Tools provides common clinical calculators used in HIV management and provide validated screening tools for comorbidities such as depression, substance use disorders, and PTSD. And if you need clinician-to-clinician consultation, HIV Care Tools provides one-touch access to free clinical consultation services by a multidisciplinary team of experts. Take us with you. Download HIV Care Tools today. Welcome to Nika in the Know, a podcast for healthcare providers in the HIV field. I'm Mariana Breitman. Today, we're sitting down with John Farragon to discuss an update based on recent data from the CROI conference that occurred in February of this year. Thanks again for being here, John. Yeah, thanks again, Marianne. I'm glad to be here to talk about the CROI update. So today I thought we could talk a little bit about the new data presented at CROI, but before we get into that, can you tell folks who might not be familiar with what we're talking about, what CROI is? Yeah, I think that's important just to start off with that. And, uh, you know, the CROI is the Conference on Retroviruses and Opportunistic Infections. This has been a conference that's been around for years. Um, and I would say it's probably the most important HIV conference that's held annually each year. Um, it's more of a, it's really a high, probably the most high, high level scientific meeting um, that's, that's held for HIV. Um, it does cover other viruses as well, you know, such as uh, HCV and COVID-19. Um, um, but this year's meeting was originally planned to be held live in Denver, um, but they did actually wind up switching it. If you guys remember in January, uh, we had a lot going on with Omicron and the, the cases were still surging. So they made it a virtual event. And honestly, they've really mastered the, in the virtual event um, uh, technology. It's really done well. Um, and it's jam-packed with a lot of good science with plenary sessions and posters. And you know, the event is really well, uh, well attended, I think, still, even though um, uh, it's still well attended, even though there is still... Um, you know, this is still a virtual virtual conference. So uh, anyways, it highlights a lot of the key data um, from, from HIV that's, that's really presented from researchers across the globe. It's not just a U.S. conference. You know, there's people that come from all over the place. So um, today um, we're going to do this in two parts because there's a lot of information to cover. And for those of you who go to CROI, this is probably a little, you know, you've probably already seen a CROI update, um, uh, but this is, uh, you know, some of the, you know, it's nice to have it all kind of digested to kind of Forget what we should cover and not cover. So uh, today is going to be part one, and then we'll, we'll cover uh, we'll cover part two uh, on a different podcast. So what we'll do today, we'll cover a little bit about the lifetime risk. There's a nice CDC study. There's 152 week data from Atlas 2M. That's the injectable cabropibrine. Though you take over three TC, some resistance analysis was done. Uh, we have five year Victarbi data, and then there's the lenacapavir which is the capsid inhibitor. There's two studies which we'll cover um, for that. So I think, you know, jam-packed here for part one and part two will be very similar. A lot of lot of information, I think, packed into it. Okay, John. So let's dive a little deeper into the lifetime risk of HIV study. Could you explain what exactly it involved? 
Yeah, so this is actually an analysis that's been done that was done a few years ago. But the data is from the CDC. They have this national HIV surveillance system, um, and they do these lifetime risk estimates of HIV. So it's all the statistics behind it. I'm you know I'm not versed in that and how they do it, but you know it's CDC. These are you know made you know major epidemiologists that do this. But the last one was done um, from 2001 to 2014, and at that time. Your lifetime risk of HIV across the entire country was about one in 106. So if you think about that, it's like 1%. And that, that was a few years ago. Um, and then it, they did another surveillance look um, from 2017 to 2019. Uh, this was from Singh and colleagues, abstract 43. And now that estimate um, for lifetime risk is now one in 120, which translates into an 11% reduction in risk compared to the previous data set. So obviously, if the denominator changes, right, if it goes up, your risk goes down. So it's about 11% reduction. So it's, so it's a little bit better. So, you know, if we think about PrEP and we think about, you know, um, getting people undetectable, all the things that we're doing for the end of the epidemic, uh, for ending the uh, HIV epidemic, the EHE plan, this is all kind of part of it to see if there's a difference. Um, men are still like much more likely to acquire HIV infection, uh, mostly through MSM risk. And that lifetime risk is about one in 76. For women, it's much lower. It's about one in 300. So, in addition to the cutting uh, to cutting this data by men and women, the CDC also determines uh, by uh, by race and ethnicity. So black and Hispanic patients as well are much more likely to acquire HIV for men, uh, black or Hispanics. For, for blacks, it's one in 27. Hispanic is one in 50. So again, um, almost like a 2% risk for, for Hispanic and almost like a 4% risk for, for, for patients who are black if you're a male. So for black and Hispanic risk, this is much higher versus white men which is one in 170. So again, just give you differences in, um, in different demographics and different populations to see what the risk is. Women, there's also similar trends, but again, much less. But for, but for Black females, it's one in 75. And for Hispanic, it's one in 287 compared to one in like almost 900 for, for white females. So again, these numbers are all good for us to kind of know, to kind of determine what, you know, what your individual risk is in your individual place. The one thing that's really great about this is that they do actually this information by state. So based on state uh, data that they collect from DOHs across different states, they'll tell you this is your risk of, of requiring HIV based on you know, what they know about who's infected, how many people have been identified, et cetera, et cetera. So they, they're able to figure this out. But the analysis also links up, um, uh, shows that if you look at the South, nine in 10 of the areas of residence in the South have the highest risk across the U.S. So what with most risk being around around less than 101 and 115. So as an example, inner city DC, um, it's one in almost one in 40. Um, in New York State, it's one about one in 108. Florida is one in 63. Georgia one in 59. Texas one in 93. So I think Florida, Georgia, and again DC is also considered south in this analysis. Um, so if you recall. Um, the EHE plan, they have that whole issue with responding. That's the last pillar of the EHE. And really, they've placed additional funds in the South for this exact reason. So since the, the risk in, of real and new infections is real, and it's a problem in, in the South, um, and they're much higher down in the South for, for, for rates of lifetime risk. So they, so they definitely have that, um, you know, have that in there. Uh, as part of the plan to kind of kind of kind of take care of that. So that's that's one piece. The next thing I'll cover is uh, the de the Atlas 2M study. This is something that we talked about before. I won't spend a lot of time on it, but this is the cabropivirine. This is actually now approved for every other month dosing. And as you may recall, we, you know we did discuss this before in previous podcasts. But this was the 152 week data, and essentially 
the risk of virologic non-response or, or um, was similar or non-inferior to the every week versus the every two week cabopriverine. So the two every two week did just as well. Um, by intention to treat and per protocol numbers, this is kind of some of the stats that they do. They, um, they were in the high 80% range for the every four and every eight week arm. Uh, withdrawals through the study were rare, but more common in the every four week arm, mostly driven by the frequency of visits. So that's interesting because every four weeks is one of the concerns that people have is like, will somebody come every single month for their injection? And actually in the study, they showed that that um, it was almost twice the rate of, of, um, of withdrawals out of the study because of the frequency of visits in the every week arm versus those doing every other, every other week. So it is interesting that you see those differences even in even in a study, all right. But um, but overall, if uh, if if you look, um, confirmed virologic family failures are very rare. Uh, a total of um, uh, thirteen patients had virologic failure through the entire one hundred fifty two week study. Uh, Eleven in the every eight week, and then two on the every four week, and most occurred early on. About seventy five percent occurred by week forty eight. Just big three big things. So if there's one thing you learned today about cabopivirine, there's three predictors of failure. All right, there's, there's, um, there's a couple of things. First one is HIV-1 subtype A6A1, which is common in Russia. We had XUS um, sub, uh, study sites in this study, and that was, that was one of the big things. Um, presence of proviral ropivirine RAM. So if you have resistance to ropivirine at baseline before you switch, you're more likely to fail. And then if you have a BMI of 30 or greater, um, the patients were more likely to fail there too. So all these predictors are, are failure, predictors for failure for cabropivirine injection. Um, 12 out of the 13 patients that they did fail, right? So 12 out of 13 went on to resuppress another regimen. So that's comforting to know that you can resuppress them and do well. Um, and I think the other thing too that's important is there was this MOCA study, um, the IMPACT 2017, looked at um, cabrofibrin injection adolescents, and it was just recently approved for adolescents as well. These were 12 to 18-year-old patients, and drug levels were very similar. And I, I think right now um, this is a uh, uh, you know, very similar results to what we saw in Atlas and Flare, um, some of the other studies that, that have been done. So we'll have to see what happens. So the bottom line with this one, every eight week was just as good as Q4. Um, if you just be aware of the predictors of failure, and I think uh, there are still some challenges for billing in some of the clinics, but it remains a durable regimen for people who are asking to do injectable treatments for HIV. So it does work, and there's good data for every other month dosing now, and it's now on the label. Okay, John. So I know that there were also some new medications presented at Croy as well, specifically lenacapavir. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So this is another one. I think we've, uh, we might've talked about this on other podcasts, but lenacapavir is another injectable that's being looked at. Um, I, I didn't say this, but the, the previous one, the Atlas 2M, the, the cabrofibrine is given as IM injections. They're, it's actually given glutally. They're, the, the, uh, it's three mLs of each drug. Uh, given every um, every other every other month, so it is it is a significant injection. But uh, this one is actually a sub Q injection. It's given every six months. So there were two studies about lenacapavir. One was the Capella study, treating experienced patients, and then there was another one called the Calibrate study. Um, so again, um, you know, we don't. I don't want to compare cabopivirine to lenacapavir. There's no head to heads, but just know, like every six months for a sub Q injection versus doing you know, an IM injection, deep IM injection of two shots, you know, again, this is, there's, there's some differences here. Obviously you can't just take lenacapavir alone. You'd have to take it with other stuff, but um, basically the Capella study looked at patients with resistance to at least two um, of the three or three or four main ARV classes. So again, uh, less than two fully active drugs from four classes, really sick patients. And basically they looked at patients and they got 
oral lenacapavir initially for like a lead-in, and then they got switched to subcutaneous lenacapavir at different time points, but basically it was every six months. And so people, after getting two shots, they had 52 weeks of data. Um, and uh, uh, about 70% of T cells over 200. So again, some were really sick with 30% under 200. Um, and obviously that's an important goal. Um, and if you look, um, uh, the change in CD4 count was pretty good. But studies in the past in these difficult populations, you'd be lucky if you got 60 70% of patients getting undetectable. But with lenacapavir and the non-randomized and randomized cohorts, about 88% um, were less than 200, 81% less than 5, 550 copies. So if you just look at less than 200, which is kind of our definition for virologic failure, it's 88%. So it's pretty, it's pretty good. Um, so I would say, you know, these results are very good. And remember, these patients are getting other drugs. So it's not just that drug, right? So they're getting an optimized background regimen. So they could have like a, a, you know, a potent integrase inhibitor, a potent protease inhibitor that's also in the background. Um, but in the patients with no active drugs, these are people, the sickest patients that we have, zero active drugs, um, about two thirds actually got to less than 50 copies, which is small numbers of patients, only six people. But again, just know that there are people who were, who were, um, um, who got undetectable who were really sick. I think the important point here is there's there's a lot of um, there's a lot of variables with these with these kind of studies because of the background regimens and drug interactions. There's all this stuff in the background which kind of makes it hard to interpret all this. But know that these that this is a potential option and um, some of these injection site reactions are obviously a little bit of concern. Um, some of these um, nodules can last a long time, sometimes up to two to three months after injection. That's a little bit of a concern, but um, it's interesting. So um, Calibrate was a study that was done for naives. And I won't spend a lot of time on this because, but you know, know that basically given every six months and it was either given with FTAF, TAF, uh, or BF, BFTAF or BIC, BIC alone. So there's a bunch of different arms in the study. Basically it was, it was compared to BICTARVI. Everybody got in the other three arms, everybody got lenacapavir. Some people got, everybody got FTAF in the beginning. And then some people got either BIC alone, TAF alone, um, or BIC and TAF alone at, you know, at, different time points at 28 weeks and beyond. So basically what you're looking at here, if you look at the percentage of people undetectable, they range from 85 to 90% in naive patients. So it looks really good at this point. Um, T cells actually were, were very good too. Um, injection site reactions, similar to what you would see in the Capella um, in the treatment experience data, some of those nodules and in induration last the longest. So I want to make sure everybody's aware of Capper is not approved yet. Um, and I think it's close, but there's been a problem. There's been an issue with stability of the drug in vials and the vials that they're using for the drug. So the FDA specifically raised questions about these vials, had something to do with this boral salicylate glass and their compatibility with the solution for lenacapavir. So it has been put on hold. Um, but they've got this, what they call continuing, continuing response. I think it's a continuing response letter, um, a CRL. And I think eventually this will get approved. It's just, just waiting to, uh, for the next, hopefully in the next few months, this will be, uh, be, be here. So hopefully by maybe by summer or fall, um, this will be approved. So right now we're in April recording this, but there's no way to say for sure. You never know what the FDA will do, but if it does get approved, um, there's also some studies on PrEP as well. Um, so pre-exposure prophylaxis, which would be interesting, right? If you can have an every six months sub-Q injection, if it's effective for PrEP, that would actually uh, be, be, help, be helpful. John, as we start to wrap up, what else do we need to know for today from Croy? Yeah. So just a couple more things, Mary, really quick. Um, Dovato, this is WTC. This is a two drug regimen. 
some people worry about it. I'm, I'm one of those older guys. And I think a lot of people who might listen to the podcast, you might be a new provider or an older provider, but you know, we were trained back in the day to always use triple therapy. So two drug regimens don't always make me feel great, but I have to tell you the data with the integra 3TC is very good. They've looked at this in many, many different ways. This is analysis from the SALSA study, which looked at patients who basically had been, um, who were on WTKVR 3TC, and they looked back and to see if they had any baseline baseline resistance. Um, and they found that, you know, similar rates of, of patients on WTKVR 3TC versus their other regimen or like a three triple drug uh, therapy, um, the rates of M184V were very calm, very, very similar, like around 3% across both arms. And what they found also is that some patients actually had integrase resistance at baseline two and still did okay. Those are small numbers, but small, small numbers of patients. But the bottom line here is that even if you had 3TC resistance, a lot of these patients got undetectable and stayed undetectable. So again, a small number, but it shows that even if you have epivir or lamivudine resistance, most patients will still likely suppress with this two-drug dietegivir 3TC regimen. And the guidelines, you know, obviously recommend HIV resistance testing prior to starting dietegivir 3TC. The key point here is that... Um, I think most people would be worried if they had 3TC resistance, but these start analysis are starting to show that if you have dietegivir plus resistant on M184V, which would show that you're resistant to 3TC, there's something happening where there's some patients still really do get suppressed and a significant number of them. There's some Italian data as well. So it's interesting to see how this is kind of panning out with this, uh, uh, with this regimen. And then finally, Mariana, just to kind of round out what we talked about today, um, we have five-year Bictegravir TAF-FTC data. So this is a uh, the Bictarvi data. So this is on the guidelines of one pill once a day option. Not a lot to say, except it's good to see that there's no resistance in, in, in patients out to five years. Uh, the numbers were very good for those people that remain on therapy. That's in the not high 90% range. Um, weight gain though was on average about six kilograms. And in, 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 uh, the only gave, they only gave you the data from the Bictarvi arm. Um, but again, very good numbers with on-treatment patients, but about a six kilogram weight gain over five years. So again, that's about 12, 12 to 13 pounds overall. So there's something we're thinking about. I think a lot of providers are, are thinking about, but again, most patients got undetectable. So big, big stories here today, right? The lifetime risk, we have that. We did the Atlas 2M study, talked a little bit about Dietegavir 3TC, the Bictarvi uh, data. We talked a little bit about Lenacapavir. Those are kind of some of the part one highlights of, of CROI. And uh, hopefully this is helpful for you, for, for providers that are out there that might not have had a chance to, to see a CROI update or hear a CROI update yet. John, thanks so much for joining us and telling us about some of the latest updates from the CROI 2022 conference. Join us next time for part two of our coverage of the CROI conference. We really hope you learned something new today. To learn more about Nika AATC's work and our role in ending the HIV epidemic, visit us at www.nikaatc.org. That's www.nikaatc.org. If you have questions or comments about anything we covered today, or if you have suggestions for topics you'd like to hear us talk about, don't hesitate to email us at podcast at nikaatc.org. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at nikaatc.org. Stay safe, and we'll see you on Thursday for our next episode of Nika in the Know.
This presentation is supported by the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS. The contents are those of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government.